0: you, Lord, for this evening. And we thank you, Lord, that no matter what we go through in this life, no matter what storms may come, uh, Lord, it is well with our soul, not because of the situation we're in, uh, but because we know that one day uh, we will be with you. And no matter what ha- takes place in this life, that our salvation is secure and guaranteed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so thank you for that constant hope, reminder, and encouragement that we have in you. And we pray, Father, you just help us to keep our eyes on you. This evening and in the week ahead. Father, uh, Lord, again, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for today, a day that we can just celebrate you, honor you on your day. And Father, thank you for drawing in those that are here tonight. Lord, be with those who can't be here for different reasons. And uh, Lord, just again, pray that your word would go forth and encourage our hearts and minds, strengthen us in our faith, and help us to draw close to you. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You guys can be seated. Hand off the baby. (laughs) All right. Well, tonight we are in uh, our fourth week, fifth week, fifth week, really. Wow, that was a lot harder to say out loud. Um, But uh, we are in our fourth commandment, if you will. And so if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, um, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, We'll get there here in a little bit. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And so we'll go there in just a few moments here. But this evening, uh, again, as we're continuing through this study on the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, uh, talking about uh, how we see these things, how we view these things, and how we can be guarded against this teaching. And so, uh, real quick review. We've covered uh, the first three. Uh, Those three, again, are Jesus is a model for living more than an object of worship. We talked about really how that sets off the whole rest of the commandments, if you will, or statement of faith in a very negative light. Uh, We agree that Jesus is a model that we should look to model our lives after. However, he is by far the object of our worship. Um, He is the object of our faith. He is the object of our salvation. And so we cannot do anything but worship him. Uh, The second commandment that we have, affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. And again, we talked about this. Do we just constantly beat people up with sin and all of that? No, but we need to recognize that sin is real and there's a consequence for sin. And that's the beauty of salvation. And number three, uh, the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. And we talked about how you cannot have reconciliation without identifying sin and something that happened. You can't have restoration without acknowledging that something wrong took place. And so we need to make judgments and discernments on that as well. So our fourth commandment, diving right in. Uh, Gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Now, right away, we see another similarity uh, to really the first commandment. And again, the first commandment, Jesus is a model for living more than an object of worship. And what they're doing is they're seemingly pitting two things against each other. Now, again, we said it the first week. Somebody in this field or in this way of thinking would say, I'm not saying Jesus is not an object of worship. I'm merely saying more important than that practically is to model our lives after Christ. And so a similar argument they would make here. I'm not saying that right belief is bad. I'm saying practically in this life, gracious behavior is more important. But as we found in the first commandment, we'll see in the fourth commandment that they can say that, but practically according to their own authors and speakers, again, uh, Philip Gully would be the one that we're kind of critiquing his work. He would be pro-liberal Christianity or for progressive Christianity. Richard Rohr would be pro-liberal Christianity. Um, and again, when we look at that, we're actually going to find out they really are pitting two things against each other. It's not one is just more important in this life than the other. It's saying one is actually wrong, to be discouraged, to kind of be pushed aside because it's more important for this to be true in our lives. So again, gracious behavior is more important than right belief. We've heard this many different ways. It can be phrased a lot of ways. Um, And again, as I said last week and maybe even the week before, when you start really diving into this and you start listening to what people are saying, you're going to see and hear this teaching in some way, shape, or form, whether really, really small or really prevalent in a lot of places. Um, and even now you're seeing there's different commercials. Um, I, I just saw one again that was talking about, you know, Jesus was a refugee and Jesus was a this and Jesus is that. So this is how we should treat people. Again, gracious behavior is what Jesus would want. Remember last week we said, even Andy Stanley said, Jesus didn't start with theology He started with the people right in front of him. What is Andy Stanley saying? Gracious behavior, loving people, is more important than right belief. Now again, let's notice the common ground we can have with this statement. There is common ground here that we can have with this statement. So what's the common ground that we can have with the statement, gracious behavior is more important than right belief? Is there anything in that statement We can disagree with the statement as a whole. But is there anything in there that we would say, you know what? I do agree that this or this is important. Okay. We should always have grace, gracious behavior, right? We should be gracious to one another. And we should have right belief, right? So we agree that gracious behavior should be a hallmark of the church. Why is it that gracious behavior should be a hallmark of the local church? Okay, because God commanded to to speak the truth in love, right? Which is basically a form of grace, right? God God showed us grace. What is Paul's encouragement to us to forgive one another? As you've been forgiven, so forgive others, right? So again, it's common. It's something that should be in the church. At a minimum, we would all agree that Christians should be patient, Kind, gentle, and loving to everyone, even those with a different theological view, right? We should agree that Christians should be patient, kind, gentle, and loving. And where do we get that patience, kindness, loving attitude and mindset from? Yeah, it's all the fruit of the Spirit, right? So we see that should be the case. And this is not we pick and choose. If someone's of a different theological view a different view, a different religious view, a different background. We should still be patient with them, kind with them, and show them love. However, what's the problem then when we hear somebody of the liberal Christian camp or the progressive Christians teach that? We have to pause and ask a very important question. How are they defining patience, kindness, love? That's where the difference comes in. Uh, Again, the way that liberal Christians apply these truths become the problem. It seems again to, or as as well, to pit theology, which where it says right belief, you can just put the word theology, against gracious behavior, as though we as Christians have to choose. I'm either going to have the right way to think and believe, I'm going to think theologically correct to God's word, or I get to be gracious to people. And you're pitting those two things against each other. Gully would think that the pursuit of good theology is the problem. That to have a pursuit of good theology or right thinking, right belief, is the problem. The idea of someone who is theological or cares about right belief is seen as someone who is divisive, arrogant, mean, or a know-it-all. When liberal Christians or progressive Christians or even, if we're being honest, even just most people in the church, right, within Christianity... Uh, and Vodi Bakum speaks this very, very well in that study we did, expository apologetics. That, that people think somebody who studies theology or studies apologetics or someone like that, well, they're just divisive, right? They just want to split everything up and just draw all these lines that really, at the end of the day, don't mean anything. They're know it alls, right? They just know, they think they know everything, right? And nobody wants to be around a know it all, right? Because it's annoying. They don't really have any kind of grace. Or understanding. They're just mean-spirited. They're legalistic. And after all, none of those things define what Jesus would have us to be. Because Jesus says, be loving, gracious, kind, patient. So you can see how if we create this caricature of somebody who's theologically sound or drives for that or pursues that, it's basically creating a straw man. You're creating this caricature, right, that is an over-exaggeration. Now, Are there people who pursue right theology who are know-it-all, jerks, not gracious, not kind? Of course there are. Just like there's people that act gracious in one environment and go home and are completely ungracious. Because that's human nature. But as a general rule of thumb, we cannot say just because somebody's pursuing right belief or theological thinking, they're automatically these things. Just like somebody who's saying they're trying to be gracious— does not necessarily mean they're gracious all the time. We can't draw those kind of statements. But when you create this character, this caricature rather, and then you attack that caricature, you can easily say, well, see, you don't want to be that, right? You don't want to be that person. Uh, Gully actually drives this point home by comparing people who are concerned about theology today to the Pharisees of Jesus' day. So in Gully's writings, he says, okay, you know what the problem with the Pharisees was? It was that they were so driven by this theological thinking. Here's a quote uh, from his own writing. The problem with the Pharisees, Gully suggests, is their, quote, fixation on orthodoxy and their misguided quest for theological purity. Fixation on orthodoxy. Now, here's a problem with that statement. Remember, Gully and Rohr both try to sell you on progressive Christianity by telling you that this is really what the church has believed from the very beginning. Remember, we talked about that in the first week. That when you read these guys, they'll say things like, basic elements of Christianity. What if the church was really Christian? Remember, that was one of the titles of one of their works. Getting back to the basics of Christianity. So what is that meant to make us do? Oh, well this is what the church has really believed from the beginning, but along the way we got it messed up. We got off course. So they try to draw us back to this basics of belief. But here Gully says the problem with the Pharisees is they were too fixated on orthodoxy. Well, now we've created kind of an irony here, right? Kind of a contradiction. He tells us in one breath, this is really what the church believed early on. This is really what Jesus taught. And in the very next breath, he says, but don't fixate on orthodoxy. What's orthodoxy, by the way? What does that word mean? I don't need the exact definition, but just tell me in your mind, when you hear the word orthodoxy, what do you, what do you think of? How would you describe that term? Something is orthodox. Go ahead, Keith. Are you shooting the gun at me? What is this? I don't know. He, he did it before, and I wasn't going to acknowledge it, but... It looked like the girls were giving you a hard time about that too. And I was like, I, he, he's getting enough of it from them. I won't add on to it. So go ahead. Okay. The original way of doing something. I like that. How else would you kind of explain orthodoxy or orthodox, Sandra. Okay. Strict and rigid, following a certain set of rules. Okay. Or maybe following a certain way that it's been done. Right. Okay. Any other thoughts? So if you guys remember from Wednesday night, and I almost was going to do this, but I probably, well, I won't do it. But we, we taught on Wednesday night. We talked about the structure of our English Bible, and I gave you guys some numbers. When you get to the New Testament, somebody that's been in there, how many letters are there in the New Testament? Letters. letters like, I mean, uh, Epistles. Yeah, how many epistles are letters? I mean letters like as far as epistles. Okay, 21. Josiah was raising his hand. I'm sorry, he kind of spoke over you, bud. I apologize. You're going to say what? Oh, I'm glad they talked over you then. Um, Because that's not accurate. Um, 21 epistles in the New Testament. And we said this on Wednesday night. If you had to summarize all 21 letters or epistles, you could break it down to two things orthodoxy and orthopraxy, okay? Orthodoxy, if you had to really summarize it, is what do we believe? Or you could say it as we believe as best as we can what the early church believed. So what did the early church believe and what were they taught? To believe about God, salvation, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, um, gracious living, right? How do we act? How do we treat each other? Those kind of things. So we learn all of that from the New Testament, Okay. With obviously the old Testament involved, but primarily those letters are teaching us what to believe about these things. But those letters also teach you how to apply those things. So when I gain the knowledge of these teachings, that's orthodoxy. I'm learning what the church has held to traditionally, not traditions, but traditional belief held by the early church all the way moving forward based on the word of God orthopraxy is the application of those things. I'm going to go live this out now, and I'm going to live out what I believe. So here, when, when Gully says, don't fixate on orthodoxy, but let me tell you what the basics of the faith are, and that's what we really need to believe, he's contradicting himself. Because to tell me, this is really what the church has believed all along, and so therefore you should believe it, but then to tell me, don't fixate on orthodoxy, he's basically giving us a reason to not take what he's saying and apply it. So again, progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity, it's a world of contradiction, a world of irony, and we even said this before last week. The only sin, greatest the greatest sin, I should say, in progressive Christianity is to make judgments and to judge and condemn. Unless you're somebody in progressive Christianity judging someone for judging, then you're okay. Again, it's just, it's just irony. Now, the writing that I've been referring to by a man named Michael Kruger... He says this in regards to this comparison that Gully makes. And I think, yeah, that's right. He says this, leaving aside the ungracious nature of this comparison. Because Gully compared those that pursue theology to who? The Pharisees. So Kruger says, laying aside the ungracious nature of this comparison. So what is he doing? He's calling his irony here he's calling his contradiction you say be gracious but you just made an ungracious comparison to us he can we can simply observe how historically inaccurate it is gully's comment is not only ungracious it's actually inaccurate so what was the pharisees issue tell me what what was the now again we're speaking broadly there were some good pharisees nicodemus i believe was a man that Pursued the things of God, right? And wanted to really understand who Christ was. But what were the Pharisees' problem? What was their, their problem in Jesus' day? Avi. So the problem with the Pharisees was that they would
1: add more work onto a- okay. Right.
0: And that's where, yep, and the Pharisees we would call legalists because they created man-made traditions and then said you have to do these things to be godly or to be, um, we would say, Christian today if we did it that way. It would be a good Christian. So they blurred the line between traditional teachings of who God is and what God commands in man-made traditions, which, again, we would say the Pharisees then were legalist because they created these things and then added them to the backs of those that wanted to believe. Absolutely. Julie. Mm-hmm. Often were not. They keep their own law. Right. They were critical of others. Yep. Yep. They could not keep their the own law. And actually, I love uh, Acts 15. Right. That's the whole argument that Peter makes in Acts 15. You guys want to make these Gentiles conform to the law, but we can't keep the law and our fathers couldn't keep the law. Right. So even in the church, you see rumblings of that. Right. Avi. Sure. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. <laughs> no, absolutely. Exactly. Yep. And what did Jesus say? You're, you're whitewashed tombs, right? You look great on the outside, but inside full of dead bones, right? Absolutely. So that's, that's as easy as you just did that. I don't know Why? Gully, roar, others can't make that distinction. Because again, the problem with the Pharisees were not that they were striving for, as Gully would say it, theological purity, right? Or being fixated on on orthodoxy. It was legalism, which is emphasizing man-made laws equal to God's, and hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. Those were the two problems with the Pharisees. And that's what Jesus corrected them on constantly. Constantly, Jesus called out their legalism, and their hypocrisy. Nowhere did Jesus say, you know, the problem with you guys is, is you're just trying to learn the law too much. You're just studying the scriptures too much. You're trying to strive for correct theological thinking too much. Kruger continues, it wasn't that they cared too much about good theology, but that they cared too little. It wasn't that the Pharisees cared too much about good theology, but that they cared too little. So, is behavior more important than theology? Again, the problem is that it pits these two things as mutually exclusive, but that is not true and never actually taught in Scripture. Any determination about a behavior being right or wrong, like judging, like we talked about last week, is a theological declaration. You are expressing what you believe. This fourth commandment is a statement about what is right belief. They're teaching you in their fourth commandment how you should believe about gracious behavior. That's a belief. That's a, that's a way of thinking. And so again, you see the contradiction. The Apostle Paul writes an encouragement to Timothy that shows us the connection between behavior and theology. So you've already been in First Timothy. Let's look at chapter 4. So First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. So if I can get a volunteer that would like to read, that would be great. Just verses 11 through 16. So first Timothy chapter four, verses 11 through 16. Who'd like to read for us? Avi did I see? Okay. Go ahead, Avi. Nice and loud. Okay, so what do we see Paul clearly teaching Timothy, which again, Timothy being a pastor of a church, most likely the church of Ephesus, as he's supposed to communicate to other believers. What is Paul teaching Timothy here? What's more important, right behavior or right thinking, right belief theology? What's more important? Yeah, yep. Yeah, keep a close eye on yourself and the doctrine or the teaching, right? Okay, so, so is Paul telling us that right theology is more important than right behavior? Paul is saying neither are more important. The point Paul making is you cannot have right theology and not have right behavior. And if you think you have right behavior but wrong theology... You don't have right behavior. He's saying you can't say one's more important than the other. They both are critical and needed and vital. That's why I love the way Paul writes this. And actually, Jeff nailed it. That verse 16, take heed unto thyself. What does that mean to take heed unto myself? How am I living? How am I doing? What am I doing? How am I speaking? And unto the teaching, the doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. So what does that mean? Teach these things and model these things. That's why I love and being in youth ministry for a long time. Verse 12, 1 Timothy 4, 12, got tons of quotes, right? At youth camp and different things. Let no man, again, the King James, let no man despise thy youth, but be an example. Be an example to the believers in all these things. So yes, have gracious, right behavior. Be an example, right? Show that this Christ-like life that you desire to live is real and practical. Be an example, and I love that because I love that he says, Let no man despise thy youth. Most likely, Paul was, or Timothy was in a church of older believers, and most likely it's believed that they were kind of looking down on him because he was a younger pastor. Now, so many people have tried to say different ages to Timothy. Some say, Oh, he was like 16. I don't believe, I mean, most people would say he's probably in his young to mid 20s here. Okay, not so much a teenager, but a young man in the eyes of the church, which again is. Kind of hilarious when I think about when I was voted on to be pastor. Quite a few people said I was too young and I was 30. So I I don't know. Maybe it's just how I read it. But when you think about that, it's not one or the other. It's both. Again, Paul encourages Timothy to be an example in his behavior and to give attendance to the word and to doctrine, which is merely teaching. And through his example, he will grow in his understanding of salvation, his own. And what also will happen? Others will come to salvation. That is, he understands, and he grows in the word, he grows in these things, right? And Paul says often, Second um, Timothy uh, chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, he says this in verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. So what is he saying? He talks down verse uh, 16. All scripture. So he's saying, you've been taught in the scripture. You've understood the scripture. So you need to continue in these things, continue in the teachings that you've received, and that will lead to right behavior. So, do we get more gracious by prioritizing behavior? Gully claims that Jesus, this is a quote, Gully claims that Jesus knew that ungracious behavior often had its roots in a misguided quest for theological purity. Simply put, good theology does not produce gracious behavior. Gully argues we get more gracious behavior by focusing on their behavior. But is that true? Here, Kruger points out that Gully has come full circle to his first commandment. That Christianity is more about morality or moralism than it is about worshiping Jesus. Which basically means God merely wants us to be nice, kind, and good. This is the foundation of progressive Christianity. It's not good theology. It's not studying the word. It's not driving to understand what God's word says. It's just be nice. Just be kind. Just be gracious. And again, full circle. These are really, these 10 commandments are basically saying the same basic thing. It's about how you act human to human. Remember we said this last week. They're more concerned about human to human reactions and interactions than human to God interaction. So again, if we were to think of a group or individual that emphasized moralism in Jesus' day, who would it have been? What was a group that emphasized how you lived in Jesus' day to the point of making that the most important thing of how you just looked before other people, no matter what was going on in your heart or in your soul? It'd be the Pharisees. So do you see, again, this group that Gully criticizes— for their ungracious behavior and yet desires to follow in their footsteps. The Pharisees cared more about checking the box and looking the part as they defined that moral behavior. Jesus never taught moralism. Jesus never taught just be moral, just be good. And in fact, Jesus taught us quite the opposite. Jesus never taught a religion of, quote, just be nice. bakum says it, that the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. And he says, the problem today is too many Christians are following that commandment at the cost of the other 10. Well, I can't say that because that's not very nice. He said, and this is going back a few years. This is right after the Supreme Court passed the, the, they amended whatever that people, you know, same-sex marriage and stuff of that. And he went on his social media and he just put a post out there, just quoting scripture. And he said, you know what I found interesting? More Christians were mad at me not because they necessarily disagreed, but because I wasn't being very kind. That it wasn't kind. And he said, that just blew him away. He said, they're more concerned with seeming unkind than they were concerned with calling out blatant sin. And that's where he said, that's where I've been reaffirmed the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. Now, are we jerks to be jerks? Are we offensive to be offensive? No. But if we quote scripture, speak truth in love, and someone gets offended, so be it. We can still speak truth in love. Avi, do you have a hand raised? Yeah, I mean, because the thing that's so like, he's about all of these, is that, again, it just
1: seems so much that seems to master, he doesn't need to look like, right? Right. Right, I mean, yep. And so, like, it's not loving. it's not kind, it's not gracious to mm-hmm. not tell the truth. Mm-hmm. That's the that's just like, but we're well, the ones that are being kind and of gracious by telling the truth. Right. And like the truth. I mean,
0: it's like, you know, like when well, the doctor says you have cancer. Right. It's not fun to hear that. But do you want your doctor like, well, I don't want to ruin their day. Well, not when right. they have cancer. Right. Yeah, it's not, and I I mean, we talked about this before. People say, like, you know, if if you grew up in a church that tells you you were born a sinner in need of salvation, and that without Christ you'll die and spend eternity in a place called hell, that's now considered spiritual abuse, is the term I've heard. Because you're abusing those people, and they're doing that to break them down so they'll keep coming back and be dependent upon you. The problem is that it's the wrong analogy. If, now, if somebody's beating people down with this, like we said before, just to make them feel horrible about wretched, and there's no talk of hope, love, grace, forgiveness, obviously that's wrong. But the better analogy is a doctor that comes in. And a doctor who sees somebody respects their value sees them as intrinsically worthy but also says this is a terminal disease and if you don't receive this cure you will die from this disease well what what greater disease do we suffer with as human beings in sin is his stripes we are healed right by his wounds we're healed and so for me to not tell someone that cure is available would actually be spiritual abuse that 's abusive, to know there 's a cure, but ignore it. and I 've shared it before, but um, I forget his first name, but the mag- magician Penn and Teller, the team, uh, Penn, I forget his, his actual first name or I don't know Penn 's his last name, I think it's his last name. Uh, but it 's kind of a famous video it 's gone on for quite a few years. He 's an, an ardent atheist, very strong atheist, and he was quoted as saying, "He does not respect Christians who do not proselytize." He said, if you really believe that without Jesus, I'm going to die and go to hell, how much do you have to hate me to not tell me that? He's like, I don't respect Christians who don't proselytize. But he did go on to say, he said, and then I also don't respect atheists who say, don't tell me, keep it to yourself. He's like, that's foolishness. If they believe it and you don't, why can't you have a conversation about that? He said, if if a truck was barreling down on you, how much would I have to hate you to not push you out of the way at some point because you're just not believing the truck's coming? And I was blown away by that. This man does not believe. He's not a believer. I don't know anything about his personal life. But for him to even say, yeah, I don't respect Christians who don't proselytize. That just, again, reminds me that we have a very important job on this planet. And that's to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, again, uh, Jesus never taught this idea of just be nice. Jesus taught the truth of God's word, the truth of sin the need of a savior, and the changed life. The indwelled Holy Spirit and the ability to be able to love and show love to your neighbor. True love. Uh, Again, uh, Michael Kruger refers back to J. uh, Gresham Mason, who wrote back in the 20s, Christianity and Liberalism. And he quotes here about Christianity compared to moralism, or the idea of just be nice, be good, versus historical Christianity. He says this, the strange thing about Christianity was that it adopted an entirely different method of how people change. Christianity adopted an entirely different method of how people change. It transformed the lives of men, not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story. Not by exhortation, but by the narration of an event. The lives of men are transformed by a piece of of news. And what is that news? Not be better, do better, get better. It's the news, the story of Jesus Christ dying on a cross for our sins, buried, risen again. The news is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is theology. To see others as created beings of God, deserving respect and kindness, that's a theological view. Why do I as a Christian believe that somebody should be treated with kindness as a created being of God? Because the Bible tells me in Genesis that They were created in God's image. That's biblical anthropology. You're not the result of some accidental evolutionary process that just happened to produce life. There's no value in that. There's no intrinsic worth in that. You're just an oops of the galaxy. And you just worked out. But anthropology, according to scripture, tells me, no, you were created in the image of God. So to see others as created beings of God, deserving respect and kindness is a theological view. Right doctrine and right belief and gracious behavior go hand in hand. Again, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. There are a lot of Christians who know a lot of theology but aren't very gracious. And there's a lot of Christians who are very gracious but don't understand the truth of God's word. And neither one is what God calls us to. I would believe, and I I tend to believe, that the more we learn of God's word, who God is, the character of God, the gospel, I think the only result is gracious behavior. If we truly apply what we believe. So I hope this is encouragement to Jeff. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So the more I study God's word, what's that going to lead to in my life? Good works, which by the way, we were called and created for. We were, that was ordained that we would be in these good works. And so absolutely it's, it's interconnected. I can't sit in, and I've said this before too, we can't sit in a study or a den and study God's word for 12 hours a day And never take what we're learning and go out and apply it in the community, in the society that we're in, and in the churches that we're in, and serving and loving each other and those kind of things. But equally so, I can't go out and just keep trying to live graciously and ignore the thing that's going to teach me how to live graciously according to God's economy. We have to be careful there. Again, nothing wrong with being kind, loving, and gracious. We should. But it doesn't... It's not at the cost of right belief or right theology. Uh, so again, just pray this as encouragement to you. Uh, but keep your ears open, your eyes open. I'm telling you, guys, it's everywhere. It, it's everywhere in Christianity. Um, and every time I turn around, I hear another video or see another speaker or someone else basically hinting at these things. And again, it's, it's concerning because what it slowly does is it erodes the confidence in God's word. It erodes the confidence. And that's why I'm so, people are like, why do you get so worked up about creation and the Bible, you know, Genesis, six-day creation being literal? Because if you can disregard that and you can get rid of that, you've started slowly to erode the confidence in God's word as a whole. And now you can pick and choose. If you can pick and choose, then what foundation do we really have? We're left with just what we think, what we feel, what culture says is okay. So again, it's out there. This is a prominent teaching. So let's be guarded against it and encourage people to get into God's word for themselves. I find also, if we just study the word, we just read the book. Like if you were to read this cover to cover, you would not come out with what so many Christians think this book teaches. But it's just like the Reformation or right before the Reformation. There were so many believers that believed, but didn't have access to this book. And once they started reading this book, their eyes were open to the truth it's the same way today. I mean, just think about the number of churches in our country that you come in. I'm not opposed to this, by the way, as far as you'll understand what I'm going to say. But they'll come in, they'll sit down, no Bible, no no device, no app, no nothing. And the verses will come on the screen and they go, oh, okay, that's what the Bible says. And then they go home. And the next time they see anything scripture is when it's on the screen next week. Now, is there something wrong with putting Bible verses up on the screen? No. I mean, I've done it before, and I used to do it with different PowerPoints and stuff. But to be honest, I got to a point where I was like, you know what? I would much rather somebody look down at their copy of God's Word than look up at the screen and, oh, that's what the Bible says. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong. For me personally, I just, there's so much more value in that. I love watching people, especially newer Christians, kind of fumble with Scripture. And I hope people don't get embarrassed by that because they never should. But they'll go, oh, wait, what did he say? Where's that? Oh, it's back here. Okay. I love that. Because I want to be familiar with scripture. Now we can just go, mm, scroll, you know, type it in, whatever. Okay, so whatever. We had the same thing basically earlier in, in Christianity with the little tab Bibles. It's the same thing, right? You just cheat that way. But, but when you think about that, like, I love that. Why? Because the only defense against this kind of teaching is this book. What does Paul say to Timothy? Timothy, write teaching. Give adherence to the word. And this will keep you straight and narrow. This will give you mind, wisdom, and guidance. And so again, it's not what I say because I'm flawed. I'm a sinful, flawed human being. I make mistakes. This book is inerrant. It's perfect. I heard one guy say recently who was the pastor of a megachurch that ended up falling backwards and then walking away and now is an atheist who's some kind of a psychedelic drug expert. It's not an exaggeration. That's how he describes himself. Pastor of a church of 8,000. He pastored a church of 8,000 and was confronted with the issue of homosexuality, could not align himself with scripture and said, nope, nope, I can't do it. I need to accept and love everybody. As Soon as he put that out publicly, the church began to kind of get divided over that. People were like, whoa, I don't know if I believe that. People left the church, lost a bunch of money. He ends up leaving the faith. And he said something that just really struck me. He said, you know, he said the, the Christianity that he was referring to, specifically evangelicalism. So he would say Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox would be different. But he said, especially in evangelicalism, it's a house of cards. He said, if you remove one card, it all comes tumbling down. And he said, if you, like the Bible, he said, he, this is his words. He said, this man pastor a church of 8,000. He said, if you remove inerrancy from the Bible, it all comes tumbling down. Duh. I watched this interview, and the guy, he was, oh, yeah, that's so, wow, yeah. Yeah, obviously, if this isn't inerrant, if this isn't fully God's word, perfect and true, and you remove that, of course, Christianity comes tumbling down. This is what it's built on. And again, it's just this mindset is out there. And I think the part that scared me the most or concerned me the most was that this man, up until about four years ago, was actively pastoring. Now, I'm not saying pastors don't make mistakes. I make mistakes. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that this man can't repent and turn from his sin and trust in Christ and be restored if he knows Christ. Maybe he's just backslidden. I don't know his heart. But it, it just concerns me that somebody can pastor a large church and preach. Every, he actually said, he's like, I started picking and choosing what I could actually preach because I was starting to not believe most of any of it. But he preached every week. He said, I was going back and preaching old sermons because I couldn't write new ones because I didn't believe it anymore. And to me, that's so concerning. Number one, I, I would hate that somebody would be in that position and could not just go to a board or a leader and say, listen, man, I need to take a break. I'm struggling with this. I don't know if I believe this stuff anymore. But he just kept preaching. Why? Because at that point, it's a corporation. 8,000? This is business now. You just got to get there and do it. That's part of the concern I have is that, man, I feel bad that this individual was put in that position where he felt like he couldn't even say anything. But the second part of this is if he did it willingly and kept preaching... And then we wonder why this teaching's out there. Because people believe it and keep propagating it, keep putting it out there. And again, it feels good to our flesh, itching ears and all that. So again, how do we defend against this? Knowing the word. Doesn't mean we can't disagree with people on other issues and doctrinal issues and all that. We have minor disagreements with other believers, that's fine. But when it comes to these core teachings, we have to be in agreement. So but let's uh I I could go all night, I apologize for that. I just started realizing it well, was like a ten minute little rant, so I apologize. But Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, somebody. Okay, let's uh, we'll pray and let you guys be dismissed. I told, I told TJ, I said, yeah, we'll probably end about 6.45. Don't look at the clock. Nobody look at the clock. It's fine. It's fine. No, all right, well, let's pray and we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word that is the light unto our path and the lamp unto our feet, Lord. It guides us and directs us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. It is the reminder that we can be gracious one to another, Lord. And we all need grace. And, Lord, I I pray that, that everyone listening to this message tonight, Lord, those here, those listening online, would know that in no way am I claiming to be perfect. But, Lord, I'm so thankful for your grace that forgives and restores and renews. And so I do think of these individuals in churches all over our country, Lord, pastors and leaders, That maybe, Lord, are are genuinely saved, genuinely followers of Christ, but have questions and concerns and doubts. And it's tough, Lord, in the world we're in right now to kind of wade through some of these murky and, and muddy waters. And so I pray for those individuals that you would just give them wisdom and guidance from your word. Help them to be affirmed in those beliefs that they hold to, that maybe the culture, even church culture, is saying they shouldn't. Help them to know, to stay the course, to finish the race, And Lord, I do pray for those individuals that are currently pastoring and teaching, Lord, that are contrary to your word, that are not believers. And Lord, I always, or I should say for a long time, I would struggle about, why are those pastors allowed to continue? Why are those churches continuing to grow and thrive? And and I love what was said recently, Lord, that those things happen because the word of God is true. And it's evidence of the wheat and the tares, that they all grow up together. And at the end, Lord, you know who's of your fold and who's not. And so Lord, thank you for being a God over all of that because Lord, to be honest, I'm so thankful it's not me that I have to wade through those things and make those judgments and those discernments. And so Lord, for us as a church, I pray that you keep us grounded in your word. I pray to keep our hearts and minds fixed on you. I pray to help us to study, to know the word. To not see theology as a bad word, but a very good and fruitful endeavor. And, Lord, for those listening tonight, Lord, that have studied theology and and studied the Word and and know a great deal, I pray that it would not be at the cost of gracious living, but that we would put that into action. Lord, help us uh, to not fall into that stereotype. Uh, So often, Lord, stereotypes happen because there's some truth in them, that there are people who study theology and are really kind of know-it-alls and kind of arrogant and cocky and, and all of that, Lord. I pray that wouldn't be the testimony of anyone Here tonight, Lord, that we would study your word, that we might even be more aware of your grace. Humbled, as Peter says, under your mighty hand. And so, Father, again, we thank you for all this. Thank you again for your grace, your mercy, drawing us close to you that we might go forth and live live unto you, Lord. Help us to give heed and, and, and be aware of ourselves and to give great awareness to the word and to the teaching. Father, in all this, we thank you for for it, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.